What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be robots. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And have you two ever noticed how much better robots are than organic life forms? All the time. That's why I only work with various things that allow me to interact with machines as opposed to actual human beings. Like, if it's a pre-recorded type message and I navigate through a menu using buttons and I don't have to talk to a person, that's awesome. They're certainly less offensively smelly. (laughs) Well, that's just because we haven't mastered the artificial intelligence sector of creating really lifelike B.O., yeah. Well, we have we have top scientists working on that right yeah. now. Yeah. No, I was kidding. But there are, of course, uh, situations where it's much better to be a robot than to be an organic life form. And we've talked about plenty of them on the podcast before, maybe in space exploration where you're at risk or in sure. uh, 
or in uh, search and rescue scenarios where, again, a human would be at risk or, you know, any number of hundreds of other scenarios. Really? Yeah, just, yeah. Just, just performing the same physical job yeah. repeatedly. Anything that would make a human bored. Or or re- repeated stress injury, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, things that where you do it once, it doesn't hurt. But you do it, you know, once every minute for eight hours a day and it starts and to And eventually, hurt. yeah, the yeah. button pushing muscles start to wear down yeah. in the bones and et cetera. Yeah, robots don't get don't get physically injured. They don't get emotionally injured. Uh, it's real hard to traumatize a robot. Yeah. yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, we've talked about the advantages, of course, that life forms have over robots in limited uh, – in, in, in each individual case. So – uh, a person like a worker is a lot easier to train for a new task mm-hmm. than a robot is. Well, depending on if if the robot is mechanically suited to the new task, you can reprogram it. Sure. Uh, well, but but a worker can learn many new tasks. Yeah. Hypothetically, yeah, yeah. most yeah. robots are pretty good at doing one thing. Right. Right. Um. Yeah. Robots, as it turns out, they pretty much can do what you built them to do, and they're pretty bad at doing anything outside of that in general. Right. Robots don't really evolve. Yeah. So, yeah. So humans are more adaptable on the individual scale, but they're also more adaptable as a type of thing. Sure. Over time, if there are pressures from the environment on a living organism, it will evolve. It will adapt or uh, it might go extinct. But assuming it doesn't go extinct, <laughs> it will adapt and evolve to to fit the, the environment that it needs to make its living in. Robots don't do that. No, they remain static. Yeah. So and that's what we're going to talk about today. Exactly. So let's talk about like like general robots right now. They they're two pretty distinct pathways for robot design in general. And of course there are a lot of branches within these, but we can go one path where we design a robot for a specific task and that's all it is supposed to do. So Roomba is a great example. Mm-hmm. What a Roomba is supposed to do is clean a floor. Yeah. It's not supposed to do anything else other than clean the floor. It doesn't do your dishes, it doesn't clean the cat box. Right. Cleans a floor. In my opinion, this is this is probably like 99% of robots and all of the good ones. Yeah, the the, <laughs> the most efficient and the most uh effective robots I would argue are of this type because we only have to concern ourselves with the design elements that will enable the robot to complete its task and we eliminate everything else, right? You don't need to include anything that doesn't involve cleaning the floor or navigation or returning to like a docking station to recharge when you're designing a, a robot like the Roomba. You just need those basic elements in it. Anything else is superfluous. Uh, doesn't stop us from doing things like having crazy Roomba fights where we put a balloon and something sharp on on a couple of them and have them joust each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but, it doesn't mean we don't put our cats on top of them and right. just watch that right. happen. Maybe put our cat in a shark costume first and then put the cat on top of a Roomba. Yeah, that sort of thing. But in general, they just do what they were supposed to do. And if you wanted them to do anything else, you're kind of out of luck. Yeah. Or we try to build general purpose robots that are capable of doing lots of different tasks Hopefully, very badly. Yeah, to to varying degrees of mediocrity, uh, because it's hard. It's not because you know. No, ro- yeah, it's not because the people working on these aren't smart. Yeah, it's, it's that, because the job is a thousand times more difficult. Right. Yeah. Because you you have to anticipate lots of different things, a lot of different changing conditions. This would be the example of the DARPA robots we talked about previously, where 
Uh, uh, the DARPA Challenge robots. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yes, the DARPA Challenge robots, the ones that had to uh, replicate a, uh, a kind of a first responder situation. Search and rescue kind of Yeah. Yeah, what tasks. all they have to do, like drive a car to a building, open a door, go inside, twist mm-hmm. a lever. and Cut a hole in the wall. They yeah. had to plug in a cable in one case. Uh, use a drill. Yeah, they had to walk across uh, rubble. They had mm-hmm. to go up some stairs and then fall over. Uh, <laughs> they didn't have to fall over, but a lot of them sure did. Mm-hmm. At any rate, we saw how difficult it is to design a robot that can do these things. And keep in mind, these were all tasks that the various teams knew about beforehand. They were designing these More robots. More or less, yeah. 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 I mean, it was, this was all stuff that they knew they were going to have to, their robot was going to have to be able to do. Uh, so building a robot that could end up anticipating all sorts of stuff, whether it's a single robot or a, you know, a robot that can then design the next generation of robots. That's something that we really haven't perfected yet. But there are some really good reasons why we would want to. Uh, clearly, being able to have a robot that could either adapt itself or adapt the next generation of robots would lead to much more efficient machines over time. Mm-hmm. And so this is something that uh, we would really like to see in technology. It's not it's not just in robotics. We're also seeing it in uh, computers. Sure. Uh, so it, there's they call it you know evolutionary computation or ep- evolutionary computers or evolutionary robotics because that's essentially what we what we mean. We're talking about a machine that looks at the ability of another like a next generation of machines to do a particular task, evaluates them, and then makes decisions on how to alter that generation to produce an even more effective generation after it. Uh, the goal always being to come up with the most ideal design for whatever purpose you have in mind. And this, so. an, this isn't a super, super new idea. No, no. There have been people who have been working on this for a while. Back in 2011, researchers with NASA published a paper on evolutionary computation that was used to design new efficient antennas way back in 2006. So the paper was published in 2011, but the actual the work project was, was done. Yeah, yeah. In, in 2006. And what they what they were pointing out was that designing a, an antenna is really challenging. It requires that the builder to have a very detailed knowledge of how antennas work, which already limits your pool of various uh, builders. Mm -hmm. And even then, it's just painstaking to create an actual efficient working antenna. So what they did was they created evolutionary algorithms for a computer to design an antenna for a spacecraft automatically. The, the, The computer system went through various designs of antenna and essentially simulated tests of them to see which one would be the most effective. They then took the designs that were predicted to be the highest performing antennas by this computer program, and they took it to the same manufacturer who was already building the antenna intended for the spacecraft. Then they tested all three of the antenna, the two that were the two best performer ones in the computer program and the one that people had designed for the spacecraft and found that the two that the computer had designed were more effective. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was one of those examples of this approach actually working better than what we humans could do. Now, maybe you don't know the answer to this, but if you do, I'd be interested in this case, were the what what we might call the mutations introduced into the models in in the algorithm that, that tested out antennas, were the mutations directed 
were they programmed in or were they random mutations? Like, was it really more like evolution where a random things thing happens and then the system tests, is this any better? Well, as we've talked about in previous episodes, random with machines is really hard to do. Mm-hmm. It was more like they were – the computer was given – an enormous number of variables and started to test them in various configurations without going through every possible one. Because the goal of evolutionary computation or evolutionary robotics is to make sure that you come to the most uh, ideal form of whatever it is you're going for without having to test every possible variation. Because, of course, as things get more complex, those variations increase in number until it would take you till the end of time to test all the different ones Mm. to come up. Uh, Version 11789777743 is the best. You would take forever to go through all of those. So what these are designed to do is to test ones that are a best guess already of being effective, measuring those against other best guesses, then combining ones. Like if you were to find a generation that works particularly well and another generation that works particularly well, you might say, well, what happens if I combine the best design elements of both of these mm-hmm. into a new design, does that increase the effic- uh, the efficiency and effectiveness or does it decrease it? Because it doesn't, you know, adding two awesome things together does not guarantee you to get a third, even more awesome thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I was wondering because I'd read about the use of evolutionary algorithms before in yeah. the design of uh, new planetary rovers, like oh, uh-huh. un- unmanned planetary rovers and testing different variations on the models in a in a computer simulation that would naturally select the highest performing ones. Yeah. Yeah. It's very similar to that. And uh the thing about the difference, you know, we're we're going to talk about a robot that works along these principles. The biggest difference between a robot and a computer obviously is that a robot is working with actual physical matter, not just simulations. And so there's some practical limitations that you encounter in that case, right? You have to work with real physical matter that has weight, it has mass, it occupies space. There's a limit to how heavy it can be. Uh, you know, you can't just magically increase the size of whatever it is uh, in a simulation and then just see how it works. You have to physically put this thing together. And so it's a really interesting approach. And we have seen a couple of examples of people working with true physical matter, but uh, it's mostly been in things like working with a program that builds stuff out of Lego. So there is an actual example of this. There were some evolutionary computational experts that designed systems that would allow a machine to build other objects out of Legos, but you had to build limitations into the computer program so that the machine would follow the rules of physics. In other words, you couldn't have two Lego pieces occupy the same physical space at the same time. <laughs> uh, right, sure. And, and some of these com- computations aren't going to, I mean, it's hard as a programmer to build all of those limitations into something that has to work in reality because yeah. the computer isn't going to understand, uh, I mean, basic stuff. Yeah. And so, so it might, when you take it out of the lab, out of the, out of the computer simulation stage, it might operate very differently. Yeah. Than you were expecting it, it to. It actually, or than the computer was expecting it to. An analogy I would make, and it has nothing to do with computers or robotics, but an analogy I would make is 
if you were running a role playing game, you're you're the game master of a role playing game, and you <laughs> uh-huh. think you have anticipated everything your players are going to do, and you have made up a masterpiece of a module, and your players are going to have an amazing time, and three minutes in, the players decide to do something you could not have possibly anticipated. It makes perfect sense within the context of the game. And then you are, and you have to throw away. Yeah, you got to throw your, away all the stuff you worked on and say, "Well, well, I, okay." I guess like it, it's sort of like if you imagine a horror movie where the characters all walk up to the spooky house, take one look, and say, mm, "No," and then walk away. <laughs> like, well, there goes the horror movie. Same sort of thing. Well, we wanted to specifically talk about some researchers from the University of Cambridge who were working with a robotic system that used evolutionary robotics. So. Imagine essentially you've got a robot that builds other robots and tests them to see which designs work the best and then either uh, either has a design go forward or eliminates designs and starts tweaking things to try and find the best physical design of a robot to complete a specific task. Now, that sounds super cool. I need to explain some stuff first. Yeah. So we can manage our expectations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so 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 performance of these of these baby bots as yeah. we might call them. Uh in this case was how fast and far it could move. Yeah. Uh like kind of scuttle across a surface. Exactly. So it's not like it was performing open heart surgery. No. No, they decided to hold that for the next experiment perhaps. <laughs> no, these robots uh all they were supposed to do were were uh, create a locomotion power that could Move it from one point to another point, and uh, they would the the experiment measured how long it took these little devices to move across this particular expanse. They changed and if up. They the, didn't make the cut. They didn't. They didn't continue on. Uh, uh, they were taken apart. They were taken apart bodily by the mama bot. Actually, to be fair, I think all of them were taken apart. But yes, uh, uh, yeah, they would. Aren't be, we all in the end? They'd be <laughs> scuttled. They'd be scuttled, and then things uh, fall apart. Yes, they'd be scuttled and, and and harvested for their organs, essentially. <laughs> uh, so that was the that was the criteria that the robot used, um, and. Here's how it gets here. Let's break this down because that's that's like kind of an overview of what happened. But it's really interesting when you get to the specifics. So what they wanted to do is they wanted to design a system that could design, test and change uh, robotic designs relatively rapidly. And it needed to be a uh, a system that could work within the lab, but wasn't designed to be a practical system that could go through every single possible arrangement of the various pieces. Oh, like that, we that would take saying. forever. Yeah. Um, the pieces are essentially two different types of cubes that I'll get to in a second. So they wanted their approach to contain, and this is a quote from their paper, paper a limited number of evolutionary iterations. And that was, you know, the, the idea of let's let evolution lead us to what should be the best version of these robotic designs as opposed to just doing trial and error, measuring everything, and then going with the top performer. Now, they did say in their paper that while this is really interesting and could, in fact, be a breakthrough in science and technology, you have to admit that there are limitations to this technology. It cannot necessarily be applied to mass production. Mass production relies heavily on automation, Automation is different from mass customization. So they said, you know, there there are certain practical applications for this kind of approach, 
but it's not going to be like we're going to design these robots and they are going to magically make all of our factories work at 200% efficiency. Uh, it's, uh, they said that, uh, there's a challenge to developing autonomous design of, quote, a large morphological diversity, end quote. Uh, morphological obviously meaning that the actual form of these mm-hmm. things. Shape, yeah. Yeah. So the basic design of the experiment was to use a robotic arm that was the mama bot. So it was a robotic arm. It had two gripper fingers, so just very simple robot. Um, one of the gripper fingers actually had a uh, uh, a little nozzle through which it could squirt glue <laughs> Mm. So it could glue pieces together. Uh, and it was com- connected to a computer that was running the evolutionary software to build the robots out of these little cube modules. And they had two types of modules. They had passive modules, which were really just small wooden blocks that were painted black. The reason they were painted black was so that the cameras that the robot was using essentially as eyes could easily pick them up mm-hmm. and see where the, the little passive ones were. Mm-hmm. So these couldn't do anything, right? They were just connectors. And then you had the active modules. These were uh, larger cubes, and one face of the cube was attached to a small motor that could rotate at a certain amplitude and frequency. Uh, so it could rotate the face of the cube, yeah. which is kind of the basis of, of the locomotion of the piece. Right. So so imagine a Rubik's Cube where only one side can rotate around, but it does so on a motor. That's essentially what yeah. we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so uh, different cubes would have faces that rotated at different speeds and the all of that information was contained within the cube so that the robot would be aware of that it wasn't like the robot was randomly picking blocks and some could turn at a certain speed and others would turn at half speed or twice speed or whatever the robot was actually quote unquote aware of which cubes could do what and uh, and by by fitting them together in different combinations uh yeah you you could you could get the the bots to kind of to kind of wiggle to yeah. kind of hop and wiggle across the table it, it reminds me um of the motion of some of the the less mobile toys in toy story yeah. um kind of just sort of like scuttling along yeah, the it ones is, that didn't have legs yeah 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 it's flipping adorable you guys <laughs> so i i'm going to see if we can find video that's shareable to share with you because yeah. it is so cute uh, it makes me think of a lot of uh like you know wind up toys that that move because they're doing this repetitive motion uh, and that's enough to propel them across a surface. Uh, not with any, they, they can't necessarily steer or anything, but they can move. Same sort of thing. Like the idea was that, all right, well, if we pair this passive module with these two active modules in this configuration, will that create movement that's faster and more effective than this other design? Mm-hmm. So the computer they used was a regular desktop PC, nothing particularly special about it, but it was running a controller program that was using the MATLAB language, M-A-T-L-A-B. And that's used for interactive environments of developing algorithms, among lots of other stuff. Uh, the robotic arm could easily grip and rotate any module it chose and could stick two of them together using what they called a hot melt adhesive, or HMA. Glue. Yeah, essentially like hot glue, like glue gun glue is a, more or less what that was. And it could build robots by combining multiple modules together. Uh, each module had what they called a gene, which essentially described the type of module it was and the motor control of that module and also included the construction parameters of the module. Construction parameters, essentially it was things like basic rules for the robot to understand so that it could effectively build a robot. In other words, 
If you want to build a robot, you're probably going to need to put a larger piece down first before you put a smaller piece on top. It was building them vertically, so it needed to know, hey, if you try and build a robot this other way, this thing's going to fall over. So you need to be able to build them. And you know, th- these are the general rules you need to follow, essentially the rules of physics, mm-hmm. so that your robot will be built the way you intend to build it. Uh, so a robot was made up of these modules, and it was said to have a genome. It was the collection of these genes. And uh, these genes would either work or not work together. And robots could have between one to five genes. Or modules, right. Yeah. yeah. Now, the, if it's having five, the max was three active, two passive. Uh, you could not have more than three active simply because it would make the robot too heavy for the gripper to grip. Ah, right. Yeah, that's that's one of those limiting factors yeah. of reality there. Yeah, so if it were more than 550 grams of mass, the robotic arm, the gripper just couldn't maintain a grip. It would drop it and it would break. And so uh, practically, you could have a maximum of three active and two passive uh, pieces connected all together. They didn't necessarily have to have that many. Some of them were only three or two uh Two uh, blocks large, at large, two blocks in total. But at <laughs> any rate, uh, the the construction parameters were these very simple directions, and it allowed a lot of flexibility. Mm-hmm. So the robot arm essentially could decide which modules to use and how to connect the two together, or three or four, however many uh, together, and then test it. So the the what would happen after it builds one of these after it squirts the glue and everything um you you could actually send it a genome essentially a recipe saying here are the modules I want you to use and the configuration I want you to put them in and this is going to represent the first generation you could do that or you could make it uh more of a random approach well once built the mother robot would lift the finished modular robot move it to the testing area which is just a flat surface for the robot to crawl across. Also known as the arena. <laughs> in some cases, it was a hard surface. In other cases, they used a carpeted surface. And at least in one, they used a foam surface. Yeah, they, they slowly moved towards the foam surface yeah. as they realized throughout the experiment that uh, the, the robots were having undue trouble. I was sad to learn that the foam they were talking about was like, you know, kind of like mattress foam as mm-hmm. opposed to foam party. <laughs> It's a little bit of robots just getting down and raving. <laughs> I come from a p- specific time, y'all. Anyway. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Wow. Take oh. Joe to a foam party. Nope. Note has I been don't, made. I nope. don't think it's, I want that. Nope. Hope you like pink eye. Here we go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so the modular robots would then be activated wirelessly. They had inside of them essentially a, a receiver for Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. Mm. And that would activate them to go into, uh, you know, their basic uh, motorized action. Spin! Yeah. And then there would be a couple of cameras, including an overhead camera, that would measure their progress across the surface. And then they would essentially uh, take the the distance they traveled and uh, within a certain amount of time. Uh, originally, they went with eight seconds. So after... Eight seconds, we see how far they've gone. Uh, they had to switch that to four seconds because later tests, the modules were moving, quote unquote, so quickly. Yeah, yeah, the, the evolution it worked. It was working. So, so they needed to have, they needed to shorten the amount of time because otherwise the robots would just travel out of the view of the camera. So they had to shorten the amount of time so that the robot arm could make determinations of which ones were the most effective. 
so after testing, the modular robots were disassembled by hand. So the so the mother did not have to kill her babies. <clears throat> no. Uh, the unfeeling scientists got to do that. <laughs> Uh, so then they had to also remove all the HMA, the hot melted agent material, and then they were replaced <laughs> onto the work area. The work area, as you would imagine, uh, each module had its specific place in the work area. So that way the robot, quote unquote, knew where to go to pick specific modules because the, these machines are not that smart, right? You have to put the things in the right uh, orientation and the right um, location for the robot to be able to grab them. We've talked about this with other robots, too, that are combining objects. If you have the objects in a specific order, I think we talked about this with the cooking robots mm-hmm, specifically. Yeah. You have to have them in a specific place, in a specific order, or else everything's just going to come out mixed up and awful. Right. It couldn't recognize what was what. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just following. Like, it, it, it understands, quote, unquote, understands the uh, qualities of each item, but only if the right item is in the right place. So if you put all the active modules where the passive ones should be and vice versa, it would... It's not going to be able to tell the difference. Exactly. Yeah. So at that point, the evolutionary system would begin to tweak the genomes. It could swap out genes in a genome uh, or it could combine different genomes. So essentially, it would be like breeding two robots saying if if a robot from this generation and another robot from that generation were to combine, uh, here are the qualities that uh, would emerge from that. Keeping in mind that essentially the robot's choosing which qualities would emerge because you're still limited. You can't have more than five genes. So it's not like it would just be additive. It would have to be selective in which genes from which two got mm-hmm. selected to be combined into a new one. And then the theory was that, or at least the hope was that, it could design another generation of better performing robots. And some of them might not perform well. It may turn out that the genes from robot one and the genes from robot seven are not as compatible and they actually perform worse than either one or seven did individually mm-hmm. in the generation before. And that happened a couple of times. Yes, it did. <laughs> so they held a total of five experiments and between these experiments, they changed up the surface. They made some tweaks to various rules. They actually numbered them one uh, A through one D and then two. <laughs> so they did five yeah. five different runs, but four of them fit under the category of experiment one. Mm-hmm. So each experiment started with 10 agents. Other, in other words, 10 basic robot designs uh, that represented 10 different genomes. And then each experiment ran through 10 generations. So you got 100 different designs total per experiment. And uh, the first four experiments started with some randomly generated designs consisting of one to three motorized elements. And they put all the construction constraints they had designed in play for those initial experiments. The testing environment was changed a couple times. That's when they started with the hard ground. Then they moved to the carpeted surface and then the foam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and humans started helping out the mama bot eventually to hold the components steady during the build phase mm-hmm. uh, so that she would not drop them. Yeah. Basically. Uh, and they also began manually inspecting the baby bots to be sure that none of the pieces were going to collide with each other during the test right. because that would damage the pieces and make things less fun for everyone involved. Yeah, especially since that would affect any future, future experiments. Right. Yeah, because yeah, if you if the cube gets damaged, then you it's hard to determine if the robot would have performed better had it worked with a brand new cube. And uh, so they were being very careful at that point. A little human intervention was necessary because it was 
you know, this is like a proof of concept type of approach anyway. Sure. So the fifth experiment, the initial generation of agents was not generated randomly. Instead, they picked some of the best performing designs that came out of the previous experiments. So generation one was actually made up of robots that had already been built in the first four experiments and just said, all right, let's, it made me think of UFC. Let's take the champions of all these different <laughs> uh-huh. fighting disciplines and put them together and see what happens. Except instead of fighting, they're supposed to make bibbies. So uh, <laughs> totally different UFC, I guess, in that sense. I would suppose so. Yeah. I mean, I've, I don't know a whole lot about the UFC, I, but I know a great article written by a certain Jonathan Strickland you should read. Uh, interestingly, the test – Could that be found on HowStuffWorks.com? It, it could, in fact. If you go to HowStuffWorks.com and look how the UFC works, <laughs> you will find an article I wrote ages ago. It was awesome. <laughs> okay. Um, so interestingly, the test pr- that produced the most improvement from first generation to the last generation was the fourth test. Uh, they actually plotted out each generation's performance on a on kind of a line graph chart and uh, – they averaged the 10 robots fitness. That's what they called the performance of moving across this surface. Uh, and they, the fourth test saw steady improvement with one exception, uh, where at generation five, there was a slight dip in performance and generation 10 saw a very slight decline in performance from generation nine. So generation nine did the best out of the fourth test. Uh, the fifth test saw the longest declining trend. So this was the hmm. this was the one where they took the champions from the previous tests and started with those. Mm-hmm. So this is the Devo group. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. They they had a devolution uh, in generation over generation from three to seven. So their their performance actually declined not steadily, but. In each generation, in there was a yeah. decrease in fitness. Uh, but then it all turned around. Yeah, they started to see improvements again and uh, all the way through to Generation 10. So it was one of those things where by the end, uh, I think in every single case, the Generation 10 robots outperformed the initial generation of robots in all the tests. Uh, there were some cases where Generation 10 didn't outperform maybe Generation 7 or 8, but in all of them, they outperformed Generation 1. Uh, it was really interesting. The fourth test top performing agents in the first generation averaged 2.8 centimeters per second. And by the tenth generation, it had increased to 6.7 centimeters per second. Wow. Yeah, so more than twice more as than fast. More than twice, yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty exciting that they were able to take this approach and increase the speed of these mobile agents by a factor more than a factor of two. Which yeah, is yeah. Great. Uh, the researchers did uh, did note that the disadvantage in having the mama bot manually test each generation is, is that it, it takes time. Yeah, and so there's a little bit of a, of a payoff balance between running simulations first versus going straight into that real world testing. And and they were talking about how they hope to streamline the process in the future by using simulations to select the most likely successful models and then begin testing with those instead of kind of starting from scratch. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, they had talked in their paper about how, you know, this is, this is a balance, right? Because when you go with the pure simulation mode, it may turn out that when you, when you transfer the simulation to reality, things don't behave exactly as you had anticipated. Perhaps the simulation was unable to take all the different factors into account. Uh, or it just may be that, you know, it's just in the real world, stuff behaves a little differently than the idealized virtual world. But a combination of the two is probably the best approach because, like Lauren says, if you do everything physically, then you need to have the luxury of time on your side. 
just because it will take this time to physically build these things. And, and plenty of blocks and glue. Yeah. And, and lots of humans to de-glue the blocks. Right. And and these robots are just blocks, right? I mean, this this is the about as unsophisticated a robot as you can get. Mm-hmm. So if we were talking about a robot designing a future robot capable of doing something really sophisticated, it would obviously take even more time. Yeah. I don't know. I've met some pretty unsophisticated robots. Well, I mean. They it, really like Cheez-Its. I didn't uh, ask. They what, don't tip well. Yeah. Um <laughs> They prefer they prefer light beer to IPAs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's why I was giggling a second second ago. That's sorry. Uh, gotcha. Please p- please continue. Well, no, no. The the <laughs> the cool thing to think about is that imagine a future where we have machines capable of designing a new generation of machines that are better adept at doing whatever they need to do than the previous ones. And then can even learn from that and build even better ones in the future. Perhaps even building a better computer to design the next generations. And eventually you arrive at Skynet or Deep Thought. Oh. Because that's exactly what Deep Thought was in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Was that, uh, well, Deep Thought said it could give the answer to uh, the question of life, the universe, and everything, but could not give the question. And said in order to get to the question, it could design a computer that would be even more advanced and be able to answer that question after a really long time but that's that's the best it could do is that it could design a better machine than it to be able to answer or to come up with what the question was. Mm-hmm. Of course, we all remember the answer is 42. Question turned out to be was six times eight. Just shows you that something's <laughs> wrong with the universe. But no, this is really kind of uh, a wait. Neat. Hold on, six times. Eight. <laughs> I'm trying to do the math. <laughs> I'll get you a computer. <laughs> um, yeah. No. It, it, Obviously, it's a joke in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but this is this is the the neat idea is this this approach where we can set certain types of machinery on a pathway to reach this in, possibly increasingly efficient means of evolution mm-hmm. to create better tools. Um, this is also obviously one of the the principles that underlie certain versions of the singularity. Right. Mm -hmm. Like this idea that we get to a point where evolution is so constant that there is no meaningful way to describe the present anymore because it's everything is changing all the time. And uh, and this is sort of the the kind of stuff that would be necessary for that particular version of the singularity to come to pass. Will it? Well, let's just say that based upon what's going on right now, it's going to take some time. We got some real cute wiggly blocks in in the meanwhile, though. Yeah. So yeah, I, I am still very skeptical that we will see anything close to the singularity on a time scale that Kurzweil has predicted. Do you mean twenty to forty years? Yeah. I meant. So this was kind of fun. I mean, if you uh, if you get a chance, you could read the paper. The paper is actually quite easy to read. It's, yeah. um it's not an inaccessible paper, and it is uh, available. It online. is, yeah, very accessible. It's it's available for free on the internet. Yep. So you can read all about the experiments. They go into detail. They really, uh, I didn't go into a lot of detail about the differences between the five different runs they did, mm-hmm. uh, just because it would have gotten super technical. It's still understandable, but just bogged down in a lot of technical 
uh, details. Yeah, but, yeah. But it's all there in their, mm-hmm. their paper. We'll try to remember to link it on various forms of social media. If you want to Google it for yourself, the full name of the paper is Morphological Evolution of Physical Robots Through Model-Free Phenotype Development. Bling! Yes. And if you want to get in touch with us and ex- and ask us to cover a specific topic, maybe there's something about the future you have always been curious about and would like to hear our take on it, let us know. Send us an email. The address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or drop us a line on Twitter or Google+. We are fwthinking at both of those. Or search fwthinking in Facebook. We'll pop right up. You can leave us a message and we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. Give your glucose alerts and readings from the G7. Do not match symptoms or expectations. Use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.